You're listening to AT Conversations. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. My guests today are Helen Avanitakis, Director of Greenwich Design District, and Adam Kahn of Adam Kahn Architects, one of the practices involved in the scheme. So, Helen, you're working with eight architectural practices. How were those practices selected? So the the team at Night Dragon came up with a a longer list of practices that they wanted to work with. And um, then from that drew out people or teams rather that they knew would bring a particular aesthetic or approach to this project. Um, They were also keen to try and seek out a few practices who either hadn't at that time had a completed building um, in London or the UK um, and um, uh, knew would be happy to work at the kind of scale that we're talking about. These are not huge buildings, but if it's your first solo building, it's still quite a feat to be taking on. So it was kind of whittled down from that bigger list down to the smaller one. And what was the um, matchmaking process? I've kind of got a fantasy of a weird dinner party game where it was sort of a chopped up master plan and buildings and a hat and architects had to to pull it out. Is that what happened or was it more sophisticated? Um, I think (laughs) think there's definitely a degree of, um, you know, serendipity that that meant that people ended up with plots that somehow seemed to work really well or I personally think work really well with their aesthetics. But um, um, actually the the approach really was to come up with a... um, to drive from the master plan first to so think about a master plan that is really going to work from a public realm point of view and the thinking was to create an environment that would be pedestrianized apart from things like rubbish collection and so on that would give the tenants who are moving in spaces to do stuff that the tenants want to do that they probably don't get to do in other um, buildings particularly if they're kind of um, post-rationalized into workspace for the creative industries um, and then finally, the last piece was to think about the volumes of the buildings themselves and the impact that they would have on the, on the um, environment around them. And then at that point, it was chopped up into two plots per practice and handed over. And they were given very strict instructions to keep themselves far apart and not confer and compare notes. And, um, Adam, did you stick to that or did all you architects have secret meetings without the client knowing? No, no, we really embraced it. And I thought it was um, a really unusual, really strong process um, that came out of actually quite, you know, strong, clear leadership and direction. I thought it was really impressive um, that actually, you know, they were really clear at the time. They didn't want it to come into kind of groupthink. They didn't want everyone to get together in a huddle and come out with something, you know, beige and kind of acceptable. Um, so there was this kind of deliberate cultivation of um, difference and clash. And I think that's, that works when, you know, when you have the context of a very clear and strong master plan that is making all those public spaces work well. Um, and the kind of, um, yeah, and the intensity of that master plan, that these buildings are thrown quite closely together and that they are in a kind of, um, you know, a particular quarter, a particular area set amongst this much bigger scale of Greenwich Peninsula. So I think that, you know, that might not work for a street, maybe. Uh, we've done streets like that, where we've had kind of uh, a number of architects working on a street. And I think maybe there's something different that you need for a street. But here, I think it works really well. 
because it's really well structured in the master plan. And we and we we you know kind of stuck to that. I think the the other thing was very clear instructions about uh, bottom lines. You know that, that uh, you know the buildings would be this size and there would be this efficiency. So rather than what happens sometimes in commissioning processes is that everyone wants amazing things and then after many months or years someone realizes they've got to save a bit of money so they just start changing it and then actually this was a much smarter process and it just gave you those bottom lines up front and said look this is this is the efficiency you want to work to apart from that go do whatever you want um so i think that was really that was really exciting as it as the process started to emerge one could start to see that one's neighbors kind of uh, popping up in terms of design around one and um, I don't think that really changed anything I think it just made one realize that actually that was something something interesting had happened um, that difference had happened because there's the, the the danger was that everyone would do the same tin shed because it was the most cheap and logical way to do to do this typology, but I think everyone has actually, a lot of different people have found very different responses. I think it's going to be good. One of the notes I got about it said, "Oh, um, this is a, uh, there's exciting implications for architectural tourism," and I kind of seized on that because um, I've looked at all sorts of schemes where people talk very solemnly about how you know it's very important to have design codes because otherwise you get an architectural zoo, and uh, so that's a terrible thing. And I suddenly thought, oh. <laughs> Maybe they want an architectural zoo. Maybe we're re-embracing it. Um, you know, is there a sense in which the kind of the oddness and the mismatch is actually very conscious, or is it just that it was a conscious effort not to iron it out? Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I think that the I don't think it will be necessarily an architectural zoo. I think some of the worst aspects of architectural zoo were maybe some big schemes like there's one I'm thinking of in Vienna where each architect it becomes a kind of ego fest and an ego battle and I think those are really unfortunate those kind of schemes and they really inflict incredible harm on the kind of urban public realm Mm. I don't think that's like I don't think that's the case here and I would actually refer to the kind of warehouses buildings in Clerkenwell that architects love working in and actually, when you look at them and you start to look at them closely, they were built with an immense amount of kind of pride in, in their workspace. They weren't built as existence minimum. They weren't built as the functional, most minimal bottom line place for a worker to sit with daylight. They weren't done like that. They had they have terracotta on them. They have beautiful moldings. They have, you know, beautiful, expressive graphics expressing a real pride about that that workplace, that company, and that's its place in the city. So actually, I see it as a more, you know, this is a kind of contemporary version of that, about having some having some element of pride and, and joy about the contribution of a building, not just to the office space within or whatever it is, workspace within, but to its, to its role to, to animate and, you know, make joyful the city around it. So that, um, that mention of Clerkenwell um, brings me to another point, which is if you take areas like Clerkenwell, Shoreditch, Soho, you know, the parts of the city that have been colonised by creative industries. There's obviously this this kind of sense of pride, isn't there, in taking an architecture which was about whatever it was. It was about industry. It was about sex trade. It was about, you know, and appropriating it. And it's almost the very fact that it 
is being subverted is kind of a badge of honor. So is there a worry that lots of creative industries will almost have a sort of adolescent um, revulsion at the idea that this is a space designed specifically for them? It will almost be like it's too sanitized and it's too squeaky clean. Yeah, I mean, I think and, and you know, to be completely honest, some of the conversations that we've had with um, people that we hoped would um, come here and relocate their businesses here have have basically said that you know what actually I I kind of I need to be somewhere that's a bit dirty and rough around the edges Mm. and all of the rest of it and I I can completely understand that there's there's a sort of authenticity that comes with that for those people this is AT conversations you can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts where we found that um, we seem to be really appealing is to businesses who aren't in those completely aspirational spaces, but they might be in the aspirational areas. So, for instance, on the edges of Hackney um, and um, uh, that, you know, at the dodgy edge of Hackney, let's say, Mm. and in a building that isn't that great. And it's a bit too cold in the winter and a bit too hot in the summer and it's not secure. They've been broken into a few times. And they crunch on chicken bones every time they walk out their front door. For lots of those businesses, um, that the ones that are coming here, that is no longer an appropriate um, environment, either for them and their staff, but also actually for their customers, their clients, the people that they want to be bringing to their workspace. And for businesses that are in that position, this is a real sea change for them, I think, being perhaps not in a postcode that is one that's particularly recognized as being a cool area to base your business in, but however, being in a building that is beautifully designed in an environment that is going to be totally fantastic for your employees and your, um, you know, your clients to enjoy is, is just a, a real new moment for them. And, and that's what's appealing to the businesses that are coming. And are the tenants picking and choosing by the architecture? They're kind of looking, saying, I want to be in that one. Some of them are, which I'm absolutely delighted um, by because they're not they're not necessarily coming from businesses that you would expect to be particularly well versed in some in architecture and particularly at practices at this size. I mean, you know, I think most people know the big names in architecture, but not necessarily the, this sort of size of practice. And so. Um, yeah, some people are, though. They're, they're totally drawn and driven by a particular building because of how it looks or the materials that they've used or another project that that architect has done. And that is just totally fantastic to mm. be dealing with that. OK, so, Adam, that brings us neatly on to the issue of the buildings themselves. I'm interested in the relationship between the two. They're not next to each other, are they? And no. You can't see them both at the same time. Is that right not necessarily no and they've gone different ways i mean they i think we started out with the idea that there would be a pair and that they would you know there would be a similar approach and that's partly efficiency as well the one that's not built yet it just got delayed by a kind of a tunnel being built uh, you know, potentially built under there so that one's just kind of a bit on the back burner at the moment but the one that's just finished now I guess I could tell you a bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, do that. So this is A three. That's right. That's right. A3. Yeah. So I mean, I guess this is a kind of we're interested in you know a workspace as being kind of raw and stripped back and a place where you make a lot of mess and stuff like that. And I think it was it felt credible that that what 
what Night Dragon were talking about, that they actually wanted, you know, messy workspace and creative workspace. And it wasn't all going to be too kind of too shishi and stuff like that. And, and, and it, it would remain cheap, you know, in perpetuity, because after all, you know, we've got loads of flats around the place. And this is not a place where they're, this is not their profit center, you know, so that there's a kind of credibility about actually their desire to have affordable kind of creative workspace in the long term. So I think that's all good. But I, I think what struck us when we first went there was all the towers that were going up around with these amazing concrete frames. And I guess there's so much building in London we get used to seeing concrete frames go up. But they're, they're interesting. I, I find them really interesting to look at. I think they're often not looked at very carefully. Mm. Uh, they're kind of unseen. They usually get clad. And the, but there's, there's so much, I mean, Building sites are always pretty lovely to look at. They kind of have rawness and a kind of materiality. But there's a lot of things going on in those kind of concrete um, frames that are just we found really, really interesting. And we wondered whether we could, you know, um, just use those trades very directly. And so rather than necessarily doing an expensive kind of Swiss bespoke concrete building, you know, like an expensive art center, that we could just actually use that kind of infrastructural frame um, techniques and also use that language, develop the language of reveals and details um, and build an architectural language out of that. So that's that's what got that thing going. And then I think as that grew, the idea that this would be a kind of, you know, a strong material rock amongst these other lighter weight buildings, because as we started to see what other buildings were, and we realized that a lot of them are very lightweight, you know, mm. natural, uh, sensible response to the program. We thought that's actually there's something actually quite nice about that that actually there's this kind of you know maybe we'll be the dull boring one or the patch but you know there will be there, there'll be this kind of stone you know like when, uh, when you put diamonds next to a piece of rock or something like that. and um and then i think that grew even further when we realized that we were next to Selgascano's uh built one of Selgascano's buildings and we thought well that's going to be amazing i don't know what they're going to do but i'm sure it's got some amazing colors on it <laughs> and won't that be nice when the kind of sun hits it and it reflects onto the concrete you know so this it, it wasn't planned but it was kind of enjoyed and I think that um yeah I don't know what would happen if everyone else had thought oh we're all going to do concrete buildings and no idea but um so the, the fact that it's different isn't different just to be different it's different I think because it has qualities because it has that quality of being a foil to other things and to be an anchor and a strong anchor against other lighter weight things and also to the, be the kind of colour and reflectance of that will, that will happen between them. You're talking about it as a rock and I can see the, the kind of joy in the monumentality of the concrete and it, and it looks beautiful but actually in the expression you've completely emphasised the kind of perforated nature of it and the relationship with the space. Haven't you done these yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah. you know, the windows are kind of accentuated these sort of canopies and you've got your double height space on the the square so the rock is it's a bit disingenuous to describe it like that isn't it <laughs> really yeah maybe it's still a building i mean i still it's still got that kind of um feeling of i think one of those big concrete raw frames when you see these great big openings and you see these kind of scaffold riggings coming out of the of the openings and it's you know there you get some color there you get yeah. a great a double high space so yeah it's 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 yeah it's not an entirely hermetic kind of rock 
Um, but I'm interested in the decisions you made about where to spend the budget because I'm guessing everybody got the same build yeah. budget. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm guessing because they look reasonably cheap, these buildings, but not that cheap. I'm guessing it was a big enough budget that you could kind of sit down and think, do we just sort of up the quality? You know, do we spread it over everything or do we do one big bang gesture? <laughs> yeah, that- no, that's right. That's right. I mean, I think... Um, there was a kind of standardized budget and and you know it's fairly um lean but i guess i guess um we like thinking strategically about money in that sense i mean another nice thing that peter Merkley says is you know get the proportion of the windows right because that's that almost comes free you know that's just that's Mm. just pure design and you know Mm. um so that that's that's a way to to do things well without necessarily spending extra money this is AT Conversations. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. Yeah, I guess it's rather than having additional forms or complexity in the form, it's to concentrate on that materiality and then the subtle mod- modulations of that materiality. So the building is very simple. I mean, we it even got rational, we, we even rationalized it down to a a rectangle where the the, um, the master plan had this kind of trapezoid form and, and that was partly to make it more of a solid entity but it was really about pulling the building back from the curb line at the edge of the development to make a little public space so that it would be a kind of a little invite into into one of the alleyways but that was I think that's a case where this kind of uh, consolidation or concentration of the form into simplicity actually does does several things at the same time so it's an urban design gesture but it's also about that the formal qualities of that building yeah i wanted to ask you about that because i um i heard you talk very eloquently about the the sort of small nuances in the public realm and the threshold between buildings and space and the kind of civic generosity or otherwise those things can bring about and specifically, I think you were talking about work you've done with with homeless teenagers and sort of saying it's not rocket science, is it? If you want to know about housing, you ask the residents. If you want to know about the public realm, you ask people who've actually set rough because they know yeah. exactly the implications of a threshold or whatever it is, a bench design. I mean, obviously, you're working within a very prescribed building plot. And that's kind of the deal is you're not allowed to think too much about the spaces in between. Well, how much of a say do you have about that relationship between your building and the modulation of the public realm itself? Um, well, as I say, there's a really clear master plan, but there were, and then there's a zone. And then we opened up that conversation and saying, actually, you know, we want to pull our building back from our plot. There's a bit of plot where, where, where you know, we're going to say we're not going to build there. And I guess another developer might have said, no, no, I want every square inch of this building I've given you. So, but there, but there was that flexibility. There was that openness to that conversation to say, actually, we're going to pull back from our plot and release that bit of plot to the public realm for these following benefits, which we've just kind of talked about. How much is the public realm designed explicitly to encourage people from roundabout to use it? Very much in, in um, designed with that in mind. And, and that's not only from a kind of master plan point of view, but it's also from the design of the public realm, which is done by Schultz and Grassov who are not included in the eight, they're the ninth architect practice that often get forgotten, unfortunately, but have done the most fantastic job in thinking about 
um, the ways that they themselves and the other creative businesses they know would like to use the patch of pavement in front of their current studio or the space beyond that if it were available to them. Um, So there's been a lot of thought that has gone into that. And um, um, when you go all the way back to the beginning of this story and and, uh, look at the kind of the, you know, one of the dimensions that was used to measure the courtyards within which the quads of buildings are set around was, um, you know, the length of a canoe or a large piece of furniture that you would be able to drag out your door after you propped it open, work on it in the courtyard and then drag it back in again. And I think thinking about it from that point of view um, has meant that we are now able to have much more interesting and robust conversations with prospective tenants than a kind of um half thought through design would have been and do you think there's anything about the architectural expression that is trying to be a Greenwich vernacular if you like from my point of view, I, my very first introduction to Greenwich Peninsula was actually from the same side of the table that Adam sits on, which was as a, a um, designer. I'm not a designer by trade, but I was working at Tom Dixon and we were invited to work on um, a, a number of projects here. And facing the prospect of a totally blank canvas is very difficult from, um, I think, any designer's point of view. It's it's always easier to be able to grasp onto mm. ideas, concepts, things that are happening around you and use those to guide you in how to respond to the, the challenge that you're being presented with. And I know it can come under criticism, but Night Dragon, the developers here, have got to try and find a way to establish their own vernacular, actually. And the only building of note that was here at the very beginning was the O2, which is a very specific and grandiose tent, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that's a really difficult departure point for anyone. So vernacular, I'm not sure whether or not the whole peninsula will fall under one. I do know that the design district is really now starting to reveal itself as having a kind of very specific personality. And I believe firmly that once the scaffolding's done and we're all able to get in there, we will really enjoy all of the different spaces. And at the moment, it looks like they're going to blend really nicely with the different types of architecture that are around. But it's a blank Mm. canvas, or it was, you know, and it's becoming less so, but still I think I mean it's interesting because Adam the way you've talked about your design for the A3 building obviously in a way it's very much of its place and that you were looking at the local construction work and the local contractors and all those sorts of things but your next building is completely different isn't it I mean I was sort of you know slightly spoiling for a fight with the architectural zoo thing and you dealt with it very very elegantly and you said something which has really struck a chord which is it's only a problem if the ego is out of control, it's not a problem if everything's nicely judged and elegant. You've established this principle of eclecticism, if you like. How can you ensure that as that goes forward, you've sown the seeds for a kind of exciting spirit of creativity rather than out and out chaos? Yeah, well, that's maybe that's that's the important rules to take away a good master plan and, you know, a really, uh, you know, good selection of people. And it's not a random selection and it's not, I'm not saying selecting the best or anything like that but it's it it is selecting people who have a certain sensibility towards architecture and construction and that's not to say that they're all in the same bag or the same boat you know style wise because style isn't that important but they they're all fairly 
committed to the kind of potential of architecture as communicative and joyful and mm. habitational. So, you know, if you meet those conditions, then yeah, go for it. But if you go for your zoo with, with lesser kind of constraints or parameters, and it's just driven by ego or greed, then yeah, the, the results I'm sure will be pretty awful. Helen, Adam, thank you very much indeed for joining me and uh, I can't wait to see it. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.